So this is tape one of the May 26, 1994 interview of Robert McCormick Adams by Pam Henson uh, in his office in the castle. And we're going to begin our interview for the Archives Oral History Project just with some basic biographical information about where and when you were born. I was born in Chicago in 1926. And uh, my father was an attorney uh, who had grown up in St. Louis and gone to Princeton and then to Northwestern Law School mm -hmm. and married my mother who was a native Chicagoan, I believe in 1922. And uh, she had gone to Bryn Mawr in the University of Chicago. Uh, her name, uh, I'm, I'm a junior, or in fact, I'm a third, uh, but I've never used anything after my name since the death of my father. Uh, mother was uh, Janet Lawrence, uh, an old Chicago family. Uh, I, my entire uh, uh, school career was at the Francis W. Parker School on the north side of Chicago, a private school, uh, a progressive school as it was then called. I began there in 1932 and, and, and graduated in 1943. Any special interests while you were in school? Subjects you loved best? I was interested in physics. There was a marvelous couple there who had come as Viennese refugees. He was a PhD in physics from the University of Vienna uh, and taught physics uh, at the Parker School. His wife taught French mm. and uh, he was really a practicer, a practitioner of Socratic dialogues and I enjoyed, I enjoyed physics very much but I also enjoyed English and history. I can't say that I was uh, all that convinced as to what I wanted to do. Uh, it was an excellent school. Um, in, my, in my year during the war, I think a majority of the classes were small, a majority of the men in that class uh, went to MIT as I did. Um, uh, I didn't uh, stay at MIT, I joined the Navy and, and uh, uh, in the fall of 1944, uh, entered boot camp and, and uh, went on into uh, radar technician training. And finished radar technician training just about the end of the war, I've forgotten, July or August of 1945. And uh, I believe I was awaiting reassignment someplace when the, when the war ended. Mm. Shortly afterward, I was uh, sent on a troop ship for reassignment in Shanghai, but this was at the end of the war. Right, uh, yeah. So. And uh, I was in Shanghai and along the, the China coast from late in 1945 until the destroyer escort on which I was then stationed was sent back to the States to be decommissioned in uh, 
well, I think it arrived in, in Long Beach, California in May or so of 1946. And uh, while in China, I had been uh, assigned fairly for some portion of time to the to the shore patrol in Shanghai, and, uh, and I'd already been rethinking what I wanted to do in college and with life, and had decided against returning to MIT in physics. And uh, any particular reason why? Just well, it was uh, Shanghai was an enormously exciting place to be, and the sense of history emerging all around you was there, and the, all of the contradictions of the last years of the Gomentang regime, and and uh, and the the communists were already very strong in the city, and there were demonstrations. It was a very exciting place. Yeah, and so you're seeing uh, a society really shift. Yeah, not quite disintegrate, mm -hmm. but really. So I came back, and and uh, uh, that fall I entered uh, the University of Chicago. I spent the summer. And indeed, not only that summer, but the next two summers, working in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, uh, but setting how, that aside. For, how did that? Okay, go ahead. Setting that aside for the moment, I then was at the University of Chicago in the college. They had that at that point had a, a different system, and basically, you got a, a college degree after the equivalent of two years. A, a Bachelor of Philosophy, not a Bachelor of Arts. Okay. And I, I got a bachelor, bachelor's degree two years or two years plus, whatever it was. I got it in June of 47, and uh, that was, of course, a general program. And then I, I wasn't sure, and for some time I, I sort of oscillated between history and economics and anthropology, and... Uh, Settled into the anthropology program and and uh, and I guess I was concentrating there. Although I was also increasingly interested in work at the Oriental Institute, which was a humanistic. Uh, the teaching program there was in a humanistic department, Near Eastern languages and civilizations, and I worked in that framework in forty-seven, forty-eight in 48, 49, and at that point, having also been managing editor of the student newspaper, I really didn't intend to pursue, pursue any further academic work, and I was interested in all kinds of activist causes, and I left the university, I was on the GI Bill as a veteran, and, and therefore could come and go with a yeah. great sense of freedom. I left the university and went into industry and worked for some months in a uh, Ford assembly plant uh, in South Chicago in a little community called Hegwich. Uh, that plant is now gone. Mm. And then shifted to the great U.S. Steel South Works, which was at that time I think perhaps the biggest single steel mill in the country, in the in the country, maybe. Well, I won't say the world. Maybe the Russians had bigger ones, uh, and worked there uh, all through the winter and spring and summer of 19, 
50 that would be. What kind of work were you actually doing? I worked in a variety of semi-skilled jobs as a mill hand, as a as a, a, a cutter operator cutting big steel beams, uh, a variety of jobs in a, in a giant mill. It was really very exciting. Were um, you involved in the union at all? Um, in a moderate way, but it, uh, at that time the union was very seniority or, or oriented and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, people who were pie card holders dominated the, the, the union. Mm -hmm. And I was really too activist for the union anyway. Um, what, what do you mean by activist? What, what, what were your interests? Someday or other point? I may discuss that, but I don't okay. intend to now. Okay. Um, then in the, in the meantime, since the big mill operated on a uh, uh, swing shift in which each week your schedule uh, changed by one eight-hour period, uh, I continued taking one or sometimes two courses, which one could do with GI Bill. Uh, and I think one course may have been all I took, but I, in other words, was continuing uh, with classes and missing one one week out of three, yeah. which was never a matter of any importance at the University of Chicago, maybe not even now. And uh, that summer, and I would guess it was not before July or maybe even August of that summer, uh, a man with whom I had taken a course or two, who uh, uh, I've, he's still alive and, and we've been friends and colleagues for all these years, uh, was taking an expedition out to Iraq. and. Uh, He had chosen <coughs> the staff of graduate students he proposed to take with him at that time. And, and the field supervisor he was going to take was a man named Gordon Keller, whom I'd known as a fellow student. Uh, and Gordon was married, and his wife became very ill mm. suddenly. And Gordon felt he was unable to go. and and uh, Bob Braidwood, because that's who this was, um, was faced with the need to make a very quick choice as to someone else and decided to take Bob Adams because at least he could fix the expedition's cars. <laughs> and, uh, or so he has since told me on occasion. Uh, so suddenly I found myself uh, on the way out to Iraq in the fall of, of 1950. And, uh, Still, having, having been very uh, candid with uh, Bob and Linda Braidwood, they worked as a team, and saying that I wasn't at all sure I wanted to be a professional in any academic field. Uh, and I, in fact, had a major hand in building the mud brick uh, expedition house that we used that year, which was the first thing we had to do. It was a very remote site in Iraqi Kurdistan called Jarmo, and uh, there were no facilities of any kind within many miles. Uh, and as the expedition went on, a, a, a young Norwegian student, whom I'd also known at Chicago, uh, came to stay with us, and uh, we shared a, a room in, uh, 
this house that, that uh, we built. <coughs> and I recall <coughs> at some point or other during the course of that winter, this would have been the winter of 50, 51, uh, lying on a bunk, on the lower bunk, and he was in the upper one, and we were talking about what to do next, and I was thinking about journalism, and I don't know what all, and, and quite what the words were don't matter, but uh, I recall his saying, in effect, you really ought to have, give further thought to this idea of the academic business, Bob. It's really very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever his words were, uh, it was suddenly a moment of realization that, hey, this was a good life. Yeah. It, uh, uh, it was very primitive and tough, yeah. but it was really very good. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't know whether that was a moment of final decision, but it was a moment when, for the first time, I faced such a decision, yeah. and I think I pretty, pretty soon made it. Uh, had you always enjoyed the outdoors? Always had, yeah. Since mm -hmm. you were, did you do much outdoor stuff as a child, camping or? Yeah, in various ways. Uh, mostly it was summer camp kinds of things. I worked for a, a summer in high school uh, in the construction of the Great Lakes Naval Training Station. So I'd done some construction. We'd had a, a good uh, shop at school and I'd learned a lot of carpentry from, from there. Uh, and I'd had three summers uh, working in Colorado, two of them as an axe man, cutting, cutting uh, uh, trees on ski slopes, which is a pretty rugged way to make yeah. a living. Uh, and, uh, and one summer for a marvelous man named uh, uh, Fritz Benedict, who was uh, an architect who had, is an architect, who had trained under uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and been mm -hmm. part of the Taliesin team for a long yeah. time, and then had been in the 10th Mountain Division, which had its headquarters at Camp Hale over on the other side of the, of the mountains from, from uh, Aspen, but he'd gotten to know Aspen then, and when he'd been discharged, he'd come back without any money, and uh, had bought a small ranch uh, on the side of a mountain overlooking Aspen, and it was a marvelous choice. He, has, he had an uncanny eye for scenery and location, and, and And I stayed, so I stayed with him for one long summer in addition and worked for him doing more construction work, particularly with masonry and so on, and became very interested in, in working with, with uh, red sandstone, which I've done ever since. Right. Uh, so I'd done a fair amount of construction and, yeah. and had a pretty good feeling for what it involved. And, and, uh, uh, and I'd been trained as a radar technician and I knew wiring and I'd in fact, in the first year when I came back from service, we ran a little radio repair shop, myself and another man. So, yeah. so I was pretty handy in a lot yeah. of ways. And, and, uh, uh, and field work, particularly in those days when there were, there were very few resources around, was, yeah. was a, it required a lot of, of ingenuity of that kind. Uh, anyhow, I then came back in the in the uh, from that dig that ended in the in the in I guess June of 1951 that would have been yeah. and uh, I traveled back slowly 
stopping, I think I, I must have taken the train. I did take the train. There was then a train from Baghdad to, to Istanbul. I took it to Aleppo, and I think I saw something of Aleppo. I took it into Adana in Turkey. Uh, from there, however I got there, I don't remember. I went, I went back to, to Austria. And Bob and Linda Braidwood had uh, dear friends in Austria, and I, they may even have been there. I know I don't think they were, but I went and stayed in an inn that some of their friends owned at that time. And then, uh, and then uh, took a little money that I'd saved up for by being paying it paid as a dig laborer uh, all the time I was at, at, at in, in Iraq and uh, joined, first of all, a British um, mountain climbing club. And then Austria was very cheap then. I even hired a, a private mountain climbing uh, uh, guide and mm -hmm. went off and climbed in the, in the Kaisergebirgen uh, above Kitzbühel for 10 days or two weeks. And then came back to Chicago in the yeah. fall of 51. And uh, I think in 51, 52, I was in Chicago all that year. And, that's and by now had settled in, into, by now had settled into a program that was really aimed at the Near East, but was in, anthro in, in anthropology department, <coughs> the anthropology department. And I was beginning to take coursework that moved out of anthropology and was specialized in the Near East. And, uh, What else can I say at that point? Other than Braidwood, were there any professors there that were particularly influential? Oh, I was very, uh, very much influenced by a number of people who were there at the time. Uh, Fred Egan, who I also knew very well in anthropology and who died a couple of years ago in Santa Fe. Uh, there were many people in the Oriental Institute whom I was even closer to. Torquil mm -hmm. Jakobsen, okay. um, Leo Oppenheim, Hans Guterbach. Uh, a whole array of people. Uh, uh, that was um, John Wilson. Uh, the Oriental Institute was a unique institute then. It was it had enormously strong people, most of them European emigres or refugees, yeah. and uh, and you couldn't duplicate that that staff anywhere in the world at that time, and perhaps not today. So it was a very intellectually rich place to be. And uh, so all that year I was there. That's 51, 52. In the summer of 52, uh, by then I'd, also, I'd, I'd moved away from Braidwood's own field of interest, which was then and has been ever since the beginnings of, of agricultural settled life. And I never returned to that problem. Um, I was more interested in cities and history and civilization and so on. And, and so while I, I had a desk in his office, my work was increasingly with other people on, on other problems. And uh, the summer of 52, at Bob's suggestion, I went to New Mexico and did field work that summer w with a man named Paul S. Martin 
who was then a curator at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, and who ran a, uh, uh, had run for many years <coughs> a series of excavations that were <coughs> quite unusual in their approach in western New Mexico and, and eastern Arizona. Uh, he was in some ways personally an old maid and a curmudgeon, if you can combine those two, but he was ahead of his time as a person who was not interested in, in material finds in themselves, but much more interested in the reconstruction, the social organization, and so on. And uh, it was a, a, very, a very pleasant uh, summer, and I think I, I may even have learned something from it. It's the only time I've ever worked in, in the Southwest, but I've retained an interest in the Southwest and have stayed abreast of it uh, in the years ever since. And yeah probably because of what I began to think about at that time. Then in the fall of 52, I came back to Chicago and was there, I think only for the, for the um, uh, fall quarter of that year. And in the winter, uh, I went to Yucatan, the Carnegie Institution of Washington then had a very distinguished program uh, of uh, field archaeology in the New World that was concentrated in the in on the Maya area, <coughs> and and was at that point uh, concentrated on uh, one of the great late Maya ruins, only a century or so before the coming of the Spaniards, a city called Mayapan, which is not far, 20, 30 miles from from uh, Merida, the capital of, of Yucatan. And it was a genuine city. It's a walled city that covered uh, several square miles, I guess. It's hard to reconstruct it now. Uh, made up of, of internal house compounds and lots of temple mounds and so on. And, uh, and it was, a, again, a, a fine crew of people. There were some uh, distinguished intellectuals, Tatiana Proskuryakov, who in the end played a significant part in the, in the uh, initial stages of the decipherment of the Maya glyphs, was yeah. part of that staff. And, uh, and I was at that point coming to grips with cities, and this was an opportunity to think about that. Did you cross paths with Matt Sterling at all in that period? With who? Matthew Sterling. No, I didn't. Yeah. I never did. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't operating in the field at that point. My guess is his work had been back in the 40s. Yeah. And uh, he was certainly a name that one, one heard mentioned, but yeah. no, I don't think I ever met him. Uh, but what, what kinds of questions, once you were out in the field, let's say in Iraq or down there, what kind of questions came to you or what did you see yourself as being able to do there? Well, I was interested in, at that point, in what kinds of forces converged to account for the beginnings of city life. Uh, how kings and temples and classes and laws and writing and, and uh, metallurgy all came together to form 
some sort of a package that was synergistic and that, that uh, started something from which humanity never went back. And, uh, and that's what I wrote my, my thesis on at Chicago, uh, which was finally accepted in March of 1956. But at that point, I was, I was the, in terms of courses that I was taking, I was, I was taking uh, sort of st standard courses, not that they were for very many students, in, in, in uh, the interpretation of ancient texts and in ancient history and, and so on. Nobody was working on my kind of problem, although there were people there who were interested. But uh, anyhow, that's what I was, I was getting ready for. Uh, I was very much under the intellectual influence of a man who probably was the greatest archaeologist of the 20th century, a guy named V. Gordon Child, a British scholar, um, who had written a number of, of books that were very influential at the time, and, and who whose range of interest was not all that different than mine. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, I met him only once on the way to the field with my own first expedition in the fall of 1956. And he, he was just retiring from the Institute of Archaeology of the University of London and was sitting in his office packing up all his books to go back to Australia. He's mm. uh, he was a uh, very distinguished man who, who was also very iconoclastic. He, he always walked around with a daily worker in his pocket, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, but was uh, even by those who, uh, who, most of them deprecated his politics and thought he didn't take them very seriously. But, but he was highly respected. Uh, Anyhow, he went back to Australia and within a year or so jumped off a cliff. And uh, uh, so I never saw him again. Yeah. But as an intellectual influence, he was certainly uh, uh, a powerful one on what I was originally thinking at that time. In terms of interest in social structure? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. and, uh, uh, and the ter the determination to ask broad questions and not... Uh, uh, I mean, one, one of the titles of his book was What Happened in History. Another was Man Makes Himself. Another was, you, I mean, in other words, he, he saw what he was doing as part of a, of a larger enterprise rather than uh, one that had sharp limits around it. Rather than uh, sequences of shards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, uh, I came back from from uh, that work in Mexico, uh, along the way meeting with another person I admired very much, a Spaniard named Pedro Armias, who had been a loyalist officer in the Spanish Civil War and who then became a refugee in Mexico. And, and Pedro wrote a series of magnificent papers in the early, middle, and late 50s, and uh, was really a very powerful intellectual influence on the work that was then going on in, in uh, 
in Mexico, Central America, and Mesoamerica. And uh, I met with him and another man whom I've known ever since, William T. Sanders, who's recently retired at Penn State. Uh, and we had a number of days of very stimulating discussions where they were excavating at, at Huimanguillo in Tabasco, uh, and then came back to the States and got married and uh, went back to work in, in the big mill in South Chicago to make some money over the summer. And, uh, and then I don't remember how in the hell I supported them. Fortunately, Ruth had a job. 53, mm -hmm. 54 was probably sort of rough. Uh, I was back in Chicago all that year, I think. Mm -hmm. And then in the fall of 54, I think I became an instructor and I was beginning to get an income. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I think I became an assistant professor when I got my degree in 56 and, and uh, uh, associate professor 61 and I think I became a professor a year or two later, 62 or 3, well, 64, 64 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it was, for those times, a fairly rapid advancement. And, and you, you made it through your PhD program fairly quickly. Yeah, if you count all the time in addition that I was off doing yeah, other things. Other yeah, other things, but... No, it's true. It, uh, uh, and then... Um, in 62, I became director of the Oriental Institute um, and uh, had two, three-year terms of that. The nice thing was that it was a, a, an institute of modest size so that one could do one's own field work and so on. And How large was it at, the, at that oh, time? Oh, glory. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to reconstruct it, but it was, yeah. uh, it, it's actually about the same size now. There was probably a a permanent faculty of 25 to 30. And, uh, and then in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, which used classrooms in the institute, there may have been 50 or 60 students. Yeah. And most of the members of the teaching department would also have been members of the Oriental Institute staff. They were right. largely overlapping. Right. And, uh, I was an exception since I had an appointment not only in Near Eastern languages but also in anthropology. See, and, all right, uh, that, yeah, I was going to ask uh, you. How did you like teaching and how challenging was it? Oh, well, I've always felt it was, you know, if you're a professor, you profess. And, mm -hmm. uh, no, I think it's, I think teaching is a form of learning and I've mm -hmm. always enjoyed it in that way. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I got money from the Oriental Institute and also from the American Schools of Oriental Research to go out in the fall of 1956 on a project which in one sense was thought of as an outgrowth of work that Torquil Jakobsen had done in the 1930s in Iraq in excavations uh, east of Baghdad where he had had the insight. Actually, a number of people were having it at about the same time, but 
at the time I knew only of his work, uh, that even though you couldn't trace ancient canals on the surface, um, that they were lined up along in linear patterns that must give you the impression of where the canal was. And, and maybe we could disentangle the many things we didn't know about ancient historical geography if we simply mapped out where these sites were. Um, it was a very static notion. Very, there was no sense of change. There was no understanding of, of the historical processes by which landscapes change. Okay, this is reel two of the May 26th interview of Robert McCormick Adams. So you were saying that the viewpoint was fairly static. Of yeah, the, the, uh, uh, there was the assumption that there was a pattern of historical geography which stayed in place and that basically the traditions of the civilization like the locations of the civilization were intact from its beginning to its end. It, it seems odd now, but it, it, it hadn't received much reflection at that time. And uh, that first season of fieldwork, which uh, uh, I did, another man came with me, although I was the director, a man named Vaughn Crawford, who had a position at the Metropolitan Museum He's now dead. He's been dead for 20 years, I think. Uh, it was a, a, a very rewarding season intellectually because uh, a lot of things that I then worked on intensely for a long time uh, came out of what was learned in that season. I didn't know quite how to use them all at the time, yeah. but, but it quickly became clear that uh, Nobody had really thought about the dynamism of civilizations themselves, or for that matter, about the, the nature of the interactions between human beings and settlements on the one hand, and, and uh, a landscape that only looked serene, that was really a very harsh landscape, and, yeah. and where it was continuously changing through the flooding of rivers and for the, through the movement of their courses and through all kinds of other processes, including desertification and, and a frontier of cultivation that was moving out and back all the time yeah. for a variety of reasons. And uh, one couldn't be in the midst of all this without having a sense that people had made a terrible mistake in thinking only about the ancient past. And, and uh, uh, I found myself walking among mile after mile of, of later ruins uh, that nobody had ever bothered to think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question of why you were looking only for the, the ones that went back to the, to the uh, pre-Christian millennia, it, it became unacceptable to me to think that way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this was a, I mean, I was independently coming at the kind of thing that Edward Said many years later criticized in, in Orientalism. Uh, there was implicit in the older Orientalist view uh, the notion that the Orient was important as long as it became the source of a, 
of a germ plasm that moved on to Greece and moved on to the West or mm -hmm. whatever. Right. And in the meantime, here were all these fantastic things that that were there and that needed to be recorded. And it also became clear, as soon as you began looking at the ground, that there was a hell of a lot going on that nobody had ever bothered to think about. And uh, that year was interesting in another way, because it was the year of, of the Suez Crisis, mm -hmm. and the pressures were building up on the Iraqi monarchy. And we found ourselves in the middle of of what was often a very tense situation in which American and English contractors were trying to keep the lid on a, on a uh, workforce in ferment, and there were strikes in the cities, and mm. what, it was really a very hairy time. And uh, I had taken two graduate students out with me to try something that the Iraqis officially didn't allow. They didn't want contemporary anthropologists to study their communities. But I took out a man named Robert Fernia, F-E-R-N-E-A, and his new bride at the time, Elizabeth Warnock Fernia, <coughs> and called them irrigation specialists or something or other. Mm -hmm. And it did work, and, and they uh, found themselves an opportunity to work in, in, uh, in the community of Dagara, in south-central Iraq, and Bob wrote his dissertation on that, and it got published, and, and B.J. Fernia wrote a book which has become a, sort of a modest bestseller called Guests of the Sheikh, and uh, they've gone on, both of them, to distinguished careers. Uh, they've both been for many years at the University of Texas on the faculty there. Uh, but during the course of that year, the Iraq government was having to deal with a land tenure problem that was explosive. And what trapped them into inaction was that they had great absentee land landowners who were also tribal leaders and who were fiercely determined to hold on to what they had and were gradually becoming less tribal leaders and more absentee landowners in mm -hmm. ways that were pretty rapacious. Yeah. But the monarchy needed their support and was unable to move them toward any pol policy of reform. So as an alternative, the government decided to open areas of desert by introducing new canal schemes and so on. And that turned out to be enormously expensive as they made plans to do so. And the question arose, well, why was there a great civilization here in the past? And uh, why should it be so expensive now? Yeah. And, the, and the British consultants told them that they had a terrible problem with salinity. And why didn't they have that problem in ancient times and so on? So. I was called in to advise on the design of a program in, on the Diyala Plains east of Baghdad where there had been a gigantic canal, the biggest one in the Middle East, in the Islamic period, in the early Islamic period. 
and uh, why had that been so successful, and why didn't they have to put in any of the deep drains that people now said were necessary, and so on. And that then led uh, them to allow me to have a look at some of the air photographs that were being taken in order to develop this. And I saw immediately that there was an immense amount of what was at that point confusing information on the, on the air photographs and, and that an entirely different kind of study yeah. was possible with them. Yeah. So we talked about a study and they brought out Tarkil Jakobsen who had been the man I mentioned earlier who'd worked over there and who had worked in the, he'd been as a young Oriental Institute staffer, he'd been in excavating in the Diala Plains in the 30s and a scheme was designed, a plan was designed of which he was the director although he stayed only for part of the year and I was the field director or something and was out there throughout the year and that took the field in the fall of 1957 and uh, in other words I'd been back only for the summer of 56-57 and then went back out and and now this was supported by the Iraq government and so Ruth and her two daughters by a previous marriage and our new daughter who'd been born in 55 all went along and Torquil went out with his wife and uh, Joanne Jacobson who turned out to be a, a very ill woman um, and Torquil spent a good part of his time minding her and then had to bring her back. And uh, uh, so Tarkold was not, not in the field extensively, but we had an interesting relationship, at times tense, but, all, and, but intellectually always, I think, rewarding for both of us. And, uh, and that was sort of the way it was for the rest of his life. He only died a couple of years ago here. But anyhow, that year I, uh, I then was able to operate with Iraq government vehicles and with no controls, really, all over the Diala area, mm -hmm. and to get a sense of what one could do with the air photographs. And in the meantime, the Iraq Revolution was creeping nearer, and most of us knew it. And uh, did you have a sense while you were there? Oh, certainly. Yeah. It was not. Yeah. It, nobody could have said when. We didn't yeah. know anything about any particular conspiracy. Well, uh, Tarkild in one of his last acts before he had to leave himself and go back with his wife, banished Ruth and the kids. Um, and I don't remember, I think maybe he'd been back for a while then he came back. I don't remember what led to that. <coughs> but they went back to uh, uh, stayed some time in, in Egypt, some time in, in Italy, some time in Greece, and ended up in Austria where I met them after I got out. I got out just before the the revolution came on July 14th. I think I left Iraq having been there for 10 or 11 months, sometime in late June of 58, mm. that would have been. So you were cutting it close. Well, yeah. cutting it, well of course, you never know. Yeah. It, it yeah. could have been another year or another yeah. 10 years. But one had the sense that, that uh, the uh, Egyptian radio was, was hammering on the monarchy. And, uh, and one had every sense that things were coming untied. So that was the sort of second time you'd watch this yeah. around you. Uh, uh, then uh, 
I also had this appointment in anthropology, and I came back in this, the fall of 58, that would have been, and there was an interesting man whom I really haven't seen in 30 years, named Philip Wagner, in, who was a cultural geographer in the geography department. And there were others in the anthropology department, Norman F. McQuown, a linguist, Manning Nash, a, a social anthropologist, uh, may have been others, uh, who were interested in the Highland Maya area in Chiapas. And uh, I took a hand at writing a proposal, which must have gone in in the fall of 58, which got funded for a study that was multidisciplinary in that area. And we got going on that at the same time that Harvard was aiming at the same area, and Evan Vogt at Harvard uh, put together a project which he kept in the field for then 20 years or so. In fact, there still are Harvard students and ex-Harvard students all over the country who continue to work in, in Chiapas. And Bob Laughlin here in anthropology is, yeah. is one of the ones who came out of the Harvard program and who, who published the great Social Dictionary and, and uh, uh, has been, they have an, I think they still have an apartment or a house in, in uh, he and Mimi in, in San Cristobal. And I've then found myself on an arrangement where I was working part of the year in Mexico and part of the year in the Near East. And mm. it was a little complicated. Yeah. And, uh, and sort of changing my shirt in Chicago as I went through. And I don't remember the sequence of exactly when I was where or whatever. But uh, I had then, we'd finished what we were going to do in the Diala area, and I was then interested in taking the same approach to the to the heartland of Mesopotamia. And uh, that was a huge undertaking, but now at least one, I knew what I could do with air photographs and, and began to, to carry on a better con equivalent of what we had begun in 1956-57. Uh, and I don't remember when I first got hold of air photographs. It was always a political struggle to get them. But I think I got some fairly early, some of the time. And uh, yeah, I had from something at about 1956. Well, that then I was getting them yeah. in connection with with the plans they were asking us to help them yeah. to advise them on with yeah. regard to the Diala. Uh, and then there was also a, one of the people who worked for the, the outfit that was advising the the Iraqis on that area was hunting arrow surveys, and they had a soil scientist named Stewart. A. Harris, who uh, I met up with him and we compared notes on the kinds of things he wanted to do, in, uh, which are interdigitated with what I thought might be done. Uh, he was trying to map ancient canals using boreholes that he was putting in with a, with a, a, a Jarrett auger, a hand drill. Wow. And uh, so we had some of the same yeah. questions and we even published an article together. and I. I recommended him to Chicago, and he came to the geography department at Chicago for a year or two, and then disappeared. I haven't any idea whatever happened to him afterwards. Uh, Was anyone else in anthropology, in archaeology, using that kind of visual information? Yeah. Uh, 
Were there other people besides you doing well, that sort of analysis for you? There was one, there were two major programs that somewhere along the line I became conscious of. The one that I knew best and, and, and came to know very well indeed was a program that was put to, published by the Smithsonian, in fact. Uh, it was a program done by Gordon R. Willey, who, oh, who sure. um, is at Harvard. Yeah. He's now many years emeritus, but he did a study of the Viru Valley in Peru that yeah. was a landmark. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, I recommended him for a medal of, uh, National Medal of Science for that, which he didn't get, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Gordon went on to become, in many ways, the, the sort of the dean of, of North American archaeologists. <coughs> that was part of a comprehensive study of the of the of, of ancient Peru that was begun by Julian Stewart while he was here, yep. and uh, various pieces of it were taken by different people. I don't remember. One time I had all the volumes. I don't have them anymore. Yeah. Uh, and. and Gordon has said in his own autobiography someplace that he thought he'd been given the butt end of the stick or something or other when he was told to go off and do a survey. But he went off and did one, and, and in many ways that was a path-breaking piece of work that, that suggested what you could do by, by looking at sequent patterns of occupation. And uh, I familiarized myself with that very carefully. I don't remember quite when that came out. It, may have been 56. Yeah. I'm not sure I encountered it until yeah. after I'd begun work, but I was I knew about it by the time I was I was getting serious later on. Um, the other one was work that, that uh, the Russians were doing in Central Asia. A man named Tolstov had published papers and I read no Russian, but some of them had been translated into French or German. So I had a notion of what they were doing uh, in, in and around the Merv Oasis and, and places like that, which was, it opened up the same set of possibilities. So there was work that was beginning to be done, but it was early and people yeah. hadn't really figured out very much about how to do it. Uh, so then I was involved in working partly in Iraq, partly in Mexico, and in 19, the winter of 1960-61, I went out to Iran mm -hmm. for the uh, Khuzestan Development Service, which was uh, the Iranian operating arm of um, something of Development and Resources Incorporated, which was uh, of which the CEO was a man named Lilienthal, who I think is yep. has a has a well-known name. Yes, and uh, they were facing the same problem. They were they were redeveloping the Khuzestan Plain in southwestern Iran, and had seen a paper that that I wrote, although uh, it was published with Jakobsen as the senior author. It came out in Science in 1958. And they were interested in <coughs> having somebody look at their area from the same yeah. point of view. So I was out there in the winter of 60-61 and, <coughs> and then was sort of back and into Mexico and back and into Iraq and I don't know, it was all very complicated. Yeah. 
And uh, then I returned once more to Iran in the spring of 63. And uh, by now, I'd, my interest had, had really encompassed these in gigantic later remains. And Jundi Shapur uh, never was able to make any sense out of it. It's a, it's a huge city, a Sasanian city that was founded by, uh, by Shapur. Shapur the first, obviously, and uh, he, in fact, brought he, he captured the army of Valerian and hauled them all out there to Iran to build yeah. the city, and uh, the city is still there. It's a gigantic rectangle, but it's all cultivated, and you'd have to have huge crews to make any sense out of it. And all I had was a little sounding money, and I never did. But but uh, it was interesting in another way because. It had a university, and uh, mm. uh, the University of Jundi Shapur was famous as a medical school. Uh, and in fact, the, the the doctors who served the caliphs and the later uh, courts in Baghdad all came from yeah. Jundi Shapur University. Uh, so it looked like an interesting place to look. Yeah. I went out in the spring of '63 and, and put some soundings in there, but as I say, they never amounted to anything. But my interests were not there anyway, and I got out of that. And the work in Khuzestan then got taken up a few years later by people who'd been students at Chicago, including some of my own students. Yeah. And that work continued uh, at the University of Michigan. And, and there's a volume on the archaeology of Western Iran or something that Frank Hull brought out that yeah. pulls together a lot of that material. The Smithsonian volume, in fact. Uh, and I was sort of in and out of places without having long seasons of work again, although I was continuing to spread the perimeter of what I had surveyed until, uh, well, I guess the next major phase was not one I did, but it was work that Henry Wright did. He, he needed a dissertation. He was a splendid graduate student. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sent him out in 60, 566 to do the the area around ancient Ur, which he did and has published. He was elected to the academy last April. Mm. Um, and uh, then in 66, 67, I had stayed in Iraq when I was there at the, at the uh, headquarters of the German Archaeological Institute, and I had very friendly relations with people there. And in 66, 67, I went out to stay at their field base in Warka, ancient Uruk. Mm -hmm. And uh, the German camp there had been there since the 1870s or whenever they, I mean, a long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was in one way very primitive. They refused to allow anything but, but kerosene lamps. But it was, it was very comfortable for work and it was a, a routine that people had settled into, it was very good. And there I found myself working with a young German named Hans Nissen, who uh, we took a real liking to one another and, and worked together all that year and became close friends and still are. And, and he came to Chicago for a while and was on the faculty at Chicago and then returned to Berlin where he's the head of a department and uh, uh, has, Done, I mean, he's one of the few people who really 
bridges both archaeology and texts, and he's done marvelous work on the very earliest writing. Mm -hmm. uh, has just published a book in Chicago called uh, Archaic Bookkeeping, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that was, and, and at that point, I, 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 I was able to get our photographs and good ones. And he and I worked together on the area around Uruk, but including a large part of the lower plain in 66, 67. Were there Yeah, any? I guess it was 66, 67. Yes. Getting out of there in... 67. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Getting out of there in June of 67 on the, the morning of the June War. Um, and again, I must say we knew it was coming. I, I knew an Italian who I think was an Italian spy. And I remember sitting on the Tigris, next to the Tigris, a couple of days earlier, and watching these loaded boxcars cross the bridge. And I suspect he was counting them for somebody. Yeah. But you could see the covers, and it wasn't hard to guess there were tanks under the covers and so on. And so the June War was, was about to pop. And, yeah. uh, uh, we were, uh, there was a party of us that assembled that June, and we were at that point thinking about a new project in, in Afghanistan. And uh, Bob Fernia, who I mentioned earlier, right. was, would now be involved as a, as a colleague himself, and a man named Paul English, who's a cultural geographer also now at Texas, and a man named Fry, Richard Fry, who was a very distinguished uh, Iranist, a linguist at Harvard, who's now retired. And I think there was maybe one or two more. Anyhow, we were all going to meet up in Herat and start to do a job on the historical geography of Western Afghanistan, and we almost got killed on the way out because mm. we found ourselves in the middle of protest marches as the news of the outbreak of the June War came and, and almost ran down somebody in a parade, which would have been the end of that, and uh, got out of there and, and had a hell of a time getting across Iran and got into, into uh, Afghanistan. And communications had failed because of the war. Nothing was... Yep. Nobody was talking to anybody, and they didn't know who the hell we were. And the man who had all the connections in Afghanistan was Fry. And Fry was coming out separately in his own Land Rover with his son, he was driving across Turkey, and his son was driving, and they hit a, a Turkish peasant. So they both got thrown in the can, and we didn't have a notion why they weren't showing up. And, and our money was running out, and we were staying as they directed us to in a in a hotel that the Russians had built, which was a catastrophe outside of Herat. And that was, first place it was desolate, but secondly it was expensive. And we yeah. moved into the bazaar in Herat and, uh, and started to fraternize with the natives and had, had began to have a good time. <laughs> Nothing else we could do. Yeah. And the Afghans got more and more suspicious. And finally they, more or less at bayonet point, told us to go to the capital and get the hell out of their hair, and we mm -hmm. did. And, and I gave up on further work in Afghanistan at that point. Uh, Fernia published a modest monograph. I don't think anything else, 
and he trained one or two Afghan students. But, but basically, that was a venture that failed because of timing, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, so by then, I'd done a, the season at Warka. Then I got some more money from the American School and some more from the Oriental Institute, and and went back in 67, 68, uh, which ran into, oh, there was also, I was in Iraq in 63, and had a hell of a time. I was, at that point I was working for, uh, I'd become a consultant for the Education and, and Development Service in Boston, which was an, was an earlier version of the National Science Foundation programs to, to upgrade uh, okay. schools. Okay. And uh, Jerome Brunner, yeah. uh, the psychologist, yeah. was maybe the chief person in that program. Uh, actually, it was a man named Jerome Zacharias, I think, or Jack Zacharias, and I've forgotten. They did physics, and yeah. then they decided to do man, a course of study, MACOS. And they weren't sure what they wanted to do, and, and so they took on several of us to sort of each go in our own direction. And uh, somebody did the Netsilic Eskimo, a man named Oxen Belixi at the University of Montreal, and produced a marvelous film, but a bloody film, that I think got us all into trouble. And uh, there were one or two other components, and then I was doing the beginnings of cities. And uh, uh, the program, I thought, was going rather well, but I wasn't on the ground. And the others were on the ground and were spending the money, and so finally I backed away from all this. But along the way, uh, I went out to do, to see if I could take some films of, mm. of what the Iraqi landscape looked like. Yeah. And, by now, I had a pretty good idea of what the dynamics were, and I was going to try to show that, and excavations and progress and so on, and, and found myself in February 1963 in Baghdad with a film crew of people who were totally inept, or worse, at dealing with foreign cultures and societies and so on. And with, you know, I could smell it in the air, there was another coup or revolution coming, and here were these people who were just impossible. And uh, furthermore, th there was what was for that time a lot of money, $40,000 worth of yeah. camera equipment that, that I had my signature on that I brought yeah. into the country. Yeah. And, uh, and we hadn't been able to do more than little bits. The Iraqis were so upset with the way things were going that they were they wouldn't let us do very much. Mm. And the crew got mad and frustrated and so on. Finally, I sent them all out of the country. I just didn't want to yeah. have them there. Yeah. And I remember in the great cavern of the, of the uh, customs house trying to find somebody who was not so afraid. Most of them had gone home and into hiding and weren't even working to get the stuff out before yeah. the trouble came. And, and I think we got out, I think I got out with the camera equipment the day before or two days before. I've had a series of problems like that. But anyhow, back to, to uh, Iraq, 67, 68. Uh, I, w I returned to the Oriental Institute's base at Nippur and again took the okay. family out, mm -hmm. or at least uh, the, younger t the younger two daughters. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
and we had a happy year there. I was surveying and in addition ran a, a large sounding at a place called Abu Sarifa, which is published. And, uh, uh, and that year again there was a coup. And, and that coup knocked out my permissions for a time. Mm -hmm. I had planned on coming out again right away and finishing work if I thought if it was possible. And nothing came back on letters and so on. And uh, uh, so 68, 69, I sort of hoped something would break. Uh, 60, fall of 69, uh, there was a conference in Bahrain. It maybe it had been January of, I'm, I'm not sure of the time. It may have been December or so of 69 I went to that Congress, knowing it would give me an opportunity to go into Baghdad. Right. And was able to get a visa, at least to go in and talk. And uh, went in and talked to them and said, look, I, uh, I can't continue to sit on my hands. Are you going to give me a permit or? So this is real three of the May 26th interview of Robert McCormick Adams. So you spoke with them, uh, the officials. Yeah, I, this was in, in, say, December or so of yeah. 1970. And uh, uh, got a guarded reply. They'd, they'd see what they could do about it. Uh, and in the meantime, I'd been asked to become, my term as, as head of the Oriental Institute had ended in, in June of 68, and if I wasn't going to get a place to work in the field for a while, uh, I'd been asked to become Dean of Social Science. Mm -hmm. And I explained that to the man in the department who was really a dear friend, a man named Fuad Safar, I dedicated a book to him. Uh, and he couldn't give me any assurance, but he said they'd, he'd see what they could do. And uh, then I went on from Baghdad to Syria right. and worked that winter and spring in Syria with Oleg Grabar, who is a, an advisor of Milo's here. He's at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton now. He mm -hmm. was then at Harvard in the Fogg Art Museum. He's a very distinguished Islamic art historian and archaeologist. And he was excavating then at Qasr um, al-Hair al-Sharqi in, in uh, north-central uh, Syria. It's one of those desert palace kinds of places. Yeah. Uh, and a very well-preserved fortified small town that really was an installation planted by an early caliph or mm -hmm. whatever. And uh, uh, so I was part of that team for that winter and spring. And uh, there were some other wonderful people there. Renata Holod, who's in the art history department at, at uh, Pennsylvania. Um, Bill Trousdale, who's here, who yeah. I... Uh, yeah. Uh, who was one of the silent members of that team, but he was, he was part of it then. Uh, Jim Knudstadt, who's a marvelous, intuitive archaeological architect who was on the staff of the 
of the Oriental Institute, but who really liked to work alone and who yeah. really worked on contract more than other ways. It was an interesting group of people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, came back from 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 Syria, and there had been no response from the Iraqis, so I took the deanship. And in the fullness of time, another month or two later, a letter arrived approving the project. I guess Fuad Safar had been able to arrange the approval, but he had not been able to arrange that they would send it by airmail. And uh, uh, so there I was. Yeah. And anyhow, it wasn't really clear. The letter was opaque as to what they'd let me do and whether I'd get air photos and so on. So I was then dean of social sciences until 74. 74. Yeah. In 73, uh, there were some signs that the Iraqis might be open to my renewal. I don't remember what the signs were. Uh, so I took a little bit of money from somewhere, and I didn't want to submit an application to NSF unless I I really had assurances I was going to be able to get air photos and, yeah. and get a permit to work. Yeah. And I went out in, the, in August of 73, and you cannot believe what the Iraqi desert is like in August. I have to tell you, it is well, something I, else. I can't imagine. Uh, it is, I mean, the temperature in the shade in the Nippur dig house was regularly in the 130s. And How when you're out you on the desert, you just—it's just really frightful. It is just absolutely frightful. And uh, I mean, could you in fact work? Yeah, just, I, I had to prove that. Yeah. That, that uh, the Iraqi inspector who, who was with me, <laughs> this this man that's just absolutely blew his mind, but he had to be there. And, Did you just keep? Consuming uh, well, I had a I had a, a driver whom I'd yeah. gotten to know and like, and and he understood what the problem was. But we had an old Land Rover that broke down, and and it was always breaking down. The gas pump was failing or some other damn thing when we were so far out that the question was always whether you could carry enough water to get yeah. back. Yeah. It's really a dangerous problem. Seriously, yeah. And I remember one time when the gas pump failed trying to drive over a sand dune to get out of something or other. And and it was in the heat of the day, and there was an old Sasanian ruin several hundred meters away. And on old Sasanian ruins, you find big bricks, yeah. great big things. And we saw we were going to have to build a track out of big bricks. And we were all huddled under the damned Land Rover, and you'd take a big drink of water, and you'd stagger out for you know, a couple of hundred meters and pick up bricks and bring them back and put them down, crawl panting under the under the Land Rover and somebody else would get out and do it. And uh, we did eventually get out of there. Uh, but it, it proved to work. And then in the fall of 73, <coughs> I submitted a proposal to NSF and resigned the deanship in order to go to the field in January of... December, January, 74, 75. But then you had just had the Yom Kippur War. Wasn't that Had the what war? The Yom Kippur War. Wasn't that 73? Yeah, but that, that, was, that, was, really all, that was all in Israel. That didn't yeah. have any effect on us. Yeah. Uh, uh, so then I was in Iraq uh, 
in the winter and spring of 75, having gone out on a Yugoslav freighter, I had to take a Jeep out. And Jeeps were illegal. But by this time, I was getting, doing things a lot differently. And, and we devised papers that made that Jeep, I've forgotten what kind of car it was, but it was a car nobody had ever heard of, the only <laughs> one produced by that company. And, and uh, it, it amused other Iraqi drivers to see this thing and wonder yeah. how the hell we'd gotten it in and so yeah. on. Uh, and it took some bribe money. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, uh, that long, long tough season in, in the winter and spring of 75 sort of broke the back of the surveys that were left. Yeah. And then I went back again in, in December of 75 and stayed again at Nippur where there was, by that time there was an expedition working at Nippur. But I stayed there for a while and did some last checking and what have you. And, and that finished up the material as far as I've ever been able to get it on yeah. Iraq. There are other things I would love to have done, but I never, it became clear I wasn't ever going to get any more photographs under yeah. that administration, and so I basically got out. And the only other field work I've done since was, was uh, in Saudi Arabia, where a former student of mine became the director of antiquities, and I got one season in on starting them off on, on surveys also, and, and a piece of another one, and that was it. Yeah. I think that may be a good place to quit. Okay, good.